there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. My talk now is suffering and joy, which may seem like a very strange combination, but I am convinced that it is entirely possible to have joy in the midst of suffering. I've certainly experienced that many times in my own life, and would hope that we will learn some things about that now. Now, just by way of introduction, uh, again, I will repeat my definition of suffering, having what you don't want, or wanting what you don't have. If you have cancer, of course, you don't want it, and if your husband has died, you have something that you wish you had. And a little girl wrote me a letter, and she told me that she was ticked off. She was an eight-year-old child, and she was ticked off because her parents had hired a babysitter for her and her younger, her younger, younger siblings. And she, being eight years old, felt that she was fully capable of taking care of the younger children, and she was ticked off because her, her parents had hired another girl. And so she said she was also forbidden to watch videos during that time. So she was very angry throughout the first half of that evening. But then she said, I found joy in reading a story to my little brother. And I thought, that's a perfect illustration of the simple little sorts of things that can be accepted even when we're not accepting something else. So suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. Ancient man, ancient man was preoccupied with goodness. Modern man is preoccupied with happiness. Everything has got to be fun nowadays. But that certainly is not the way to learn how to accept suffering. So point number one is necessity. Suffering is a necessity. There is a world to be redeemed, one writer has said, a world to be redeemed from pain in the end, but it can only be redeemed through pain, which is God's and ours. I'll read that again. There is a world to be redeemed from pain in the end, but it can only be redeemed through pain, God's and ours. And the Bible, of course, is full of suffering. The word is used over and over and over again. The same writer has said, it's part of the plot of a love story. Suffering is part of the plot of a love story. In Matthew 16:24, we read Jesus speaking to his disciples, speaking to the crowds, actually. He said, if, if anyone wants to be my disciple, 
there are three things that he must do. He must give up his right to himself. Number two, take up the cross. And number three, follow. And it's not for nothing that the Lord puts that very first thing first. Give up your right to yourself. Because it is the hardest thing in the world, isn't it? We love ourselves. The truth is that we really do love ourselves. And if we don't know that that's true, just wait till somebody really steps on your toes, figuratively or literally. Uh, somebody does something that you don't like, and you immediately recoil because of that person. And so these are pains that we have to endure, and they're part of the plot of a love story. But Jesus said, you must give up your right to yourself. And that means total self-abandonment. Just give yourself to God. Here I am, Lord, all of you for you, for all of you for you forever. All of me for you forever. Do anything you want with me. Can you do that? Have you done that? It's something that I think we need to do frequently. And once we have given up our right to ourselves, then and then only, we're in a position to take up the cross. The taking up of the cross is no great action done once for all, but the continual daily practice of small duties which are distasteful to us. That's John H. Newman's definition of the taking up of the cross. It's worth writing down. The taking up of the cross is no great action done once for all, but the continual daily practice of small duties which are distasteful to us. I think all of us can think of small duties which are distasteful to us. And so our instruction in sanctity comes not through ideas, but through suffering and through adversity. And the Lord portions out to each of us the measure of adversity that he knows is required in order to shape us into the image of his Son. And that's what Jesus is working on all the time. You and I should be shaped to the image of his Son. That takes suffering. It leads to joy. The two things are inextricably linked. Suffering and joy. Someone has said redemption can be accomplished only through agony and death. And this means literally and figuratively. There are many deaths that we have to die, aren't there? Deaths to ourselves, deaths to our hopes, deaths to our longings. And all of this is part of the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. I want to be like Jesus. And I'm certainly assuming that everybody here wants to be like Jesus or you wouldn't have bothered to come. But let's not be surprised when the Lord gives us a measure of suffering. And we can be assured always that that measure is precisely measured. He knows exactly the burden that we can bear. And when we think that God at this time has really given us way more than we can possibly sustain, of course it's we who are wrong about that. 
Remember that when Jesus was hanging on the cross in unspeakable suffering, there were all sorts of taunts flung at him, one of them being, he saved others, himself he could not save. It was said in derision, of course, but it was true. Jesus could not have saved himself and us. It had to be one or the other. And so he went to the cross for us. In other words, suffering is a necessity. And the more you think about it and the more you hear of other people's sufferings and realizing the unspeakable load of suffering that there is in the world, the more we realize that it is a necessity. And the Bible says, ought not Christ to have suffered? The answer, of course, is yes. He had to. The Bible says God was in Christ reconciling reconciling himself. When Jesus was actually hanging on the cross, God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself. So God suffered when his son suffered, and yet it was God, of course, who sent him to that cross. These are mysteries, unfathomable mysteries. And the more about suffering that we learn in our own experience, the more we realize how mysterious it is and how impossible it is to explain it. In my book, A Path Through Suffering, I think it starts out with the letter that I had from a little six-year-old boy. Let me read this to you. He wrote to me, my grandmother has a brain tumor. The doctor says she only has six months to live. Can you help me about this? He enclosed a picture of himself. I held it in my hand and studied the wistful little face. So sweet. Could I help him about this? It was not the first time I had faced such a question. What was I, a jungle missionary, to say to my own child of two when she learned the song, Jesus Loves Me? And of course, Valerie, when she learned the song, then she asked me the obvious question, did Jesus love my daddy? What am I supposed to say? The truth. I said, yes, he loves your daddy. Next question, why did he let my daddy get killed? And I had to say, I don't know. But he doesn't do anything for nothing. He knows exactly what he's doing. And someday we're going to understand the whole magnificent pattern of what God has ordained for our blessing, for our sanctification, not for our misery, but in order that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. And every single day there is some way in which God is seeking to conform us into that image. Hebrews 2, this is one of my favorite passages. Verse 5, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. 
In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. That phrase we certainly can understand. We do not see everything under, it's subject to him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Jesus was crowned because he suffered. And I think if you have been as blessed as I have been with knowing many very great Christian people, you will find that every one of them has suffered very deeply. And the more the suffering, the more the glory that you see in those people. And if I had time this morning, I could go on and on and on telling you about the many who have influenced my own life. And I have discovered that in every case, they were people who had suffered very deeply. I remember my uh, dear sweet lady, I went to the Prairie Bible Institute in Alberta, Canada after I graduated from college. And it was a long way from New Jersey and I felt very homesick and I really felt like fish out of water because I think I was the only college graduate in this Bible school. And one day I was feeling particularly sorry for myself and there was a knock on my door. And I opened the door and here was a radiant face, a dear, sweet-looking old lady standing there at the door. She had, her face was framed with beautiful white hair. She had pink cheeks and this absolutely seraphic smile. And she said to me, are you Betty Howard? And that was my name in those days. And I said, yes. And she said, oh, Betty dear, you don't know me, but I've been praying for you. And I just thought perhaps you'd like to come down to my little apartment and we'd have a cup of tea. Well, you can be sure that there were many a bitter winter afternoon when I made my way down to that little apartment and had a cup of tea with this wonderful Scottish lady. And she was, she was just an angel to me. She somehow picked me out of 1,600 students, somehow or other came to my door. I never did find out why or how, but she knew that I was homesick. I don't think I had said so. And for years thereafter, she kept up with me until she died. When I went to Ecuador, I still received her letters. And she would always give me Romans 15:13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I think she recognized that I was a very worried person, and that's the way I was born. I think all six of us kids are worriers, or maybe, maybe I should say five. I have one brother that doesn't seem to worry about much of anything, and all the rest of us worry about everything. And she saw that. Well, years later, uh, she and I were both widowed, and I went back to Prairie Bible Institute after I had been in Ecuador, and we began sort of comparing notes with what it's like to lose your husband. And she said to me, Oh, Betty dear, you know, you, you've said things that you should never have said. 
and you wish you had said things that you said that you didn't say. And I said, Lord, why didn't you show me? And he said, because you weren't ready to be shown. And I want to be ready to be shown in whatever form of suffering God meets out to me. And I want you this morning to get this notion through your head, if I could possibly help you to do that. But here it says, he was crowned because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the maker of the universe, the Son of God, the spotless, pure Savior, had to experience everything that we human beings have to experience. He was crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10 says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. That redemptive power. Because he suffered, he is able to help you and me. The things that we were talking about earlier this morning things which are hard for us, things that we just want to get rid of and don't have to go through. But he's there for us, and he has assigned to us precisely the amount of suffering that he knows is necessary for our sanctification. A man named Walter Chizek or Chisek or something, I don't know how to pronounce his Polish name, but he was in a concentration camp in Russia, and he wrote a beautiful book called He Leadeth Me. And he tells there how the Soviet interrogators were trying to persuade him to cooperate. And he says, I saw only my own weakness and helplessness to choose either position open to me, cooperation or execution. I knew that I had gone beyond all bounds I had crossed over the brink into a fit of blackness I had never known before. It was very real, and I began to tremble. I had lost the last shreds of my faith in God. Recognizing that, I turned immediately to prayer in fear and trembling. I knew that I had to seek immediately the God I had forgotten. I knew immediately what I must do, what I would do, and somehow I knew that I could do it. I knew that I must choose to abandon myself entirely to the will of the Father and live from now on in this spirit of self-abandonment to God. And I did it. God's will was not hidden somewhere out there in the situations in which I found myself. The situations themselves were his will for me. What he wanted was for me to accept these situations from his hands. And none of us can really put ourselves in a Soviet concentration camp. But this is the context. What he wanted for me, what he wanted was for me to accept these situations from his hands, to let go of the reins, 
and place myself entirely at his disposal. It was the grace that God had been offering me all my life, but which I had never really had the courage to accept in full. Have you ever had the courage to accept in full whatever is the hardest thing in your life? The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit, and he will help us, and he's there for us constantly. As George MacDonald said, were it not for suffering, millions of human beings would never develop an atom of affection. It is folly to conclude that a thing ought not to be done because it hurts. Here's a lesson for your children to learn, isn't it? It is folly to to conclude that a thing ought not to be done because it hurts. What about those spankings? And I love, uh, what was the name of the old southern preacher? I've forgotten his name now, but he said that his definition of a spanking was posterior application of superior force. It is folly to conclude that a thing ought not to be done because it hurts. There are powers to be born, creations to be perfected, sinners to be redeemed, all through the ministry of pain. Now let's just think of ourselves for a minute here. There are powers to be born in us, no matter what our age is, and I'm assuming that I am by far the oldest person in this room. There are still powers to be born, creations to be perfected, sinners to be redeemed, that certainly takes in all of us, all through the ministry of pain that could never be born, perfected, and redeemed in any other way. So in other words, pain is a necessity. Now number two, suffering is a gift from God himself. Now this concept is anathema to the natural mind. It is an outrage. Why would God give us a gift of suffering? But as I ransack the scriptures, I find that it's mentioned again and again in connection with gifts. Suffering itself is a gift which God is giving us. And someone sent me a very beautiful poem. I believe the author was Martha Snell Nicholson. It's called The Thorn. I stood a mendicant of God, and we don't use the word mendicant very often nowadays, but it simply means a beggar. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift that I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, But Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, My child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurts sore, 
As long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil that hides his face. Are you willing to accept the gift that God is giving you in suffering? A loving God gives good gifts to sinful people. And some of those gifts are suffering. And so when we look up and we say, I don't understand why you're doing this to me, Lord. And how many times have we asked that three-letter word, why? It's all through the Bible. Job asked it countless times. The psalmist asked it. Jesus himself prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so it's human nature for us to ask why, but we do have some clues. And one of the major clues as to why is the necessity of suffering. He is a loving God, and therefore he gives good gifts. Just as you are loving mothers, you who have children, you love that child, and of course the child has said to you 20 times, you don't even love me. And you have to explain, yes, the reason I'm spanking you is because I love you. And that is not going to make any sense to any little child, but he has to hear it anyway. And Jesus said that the cup, he spoke about the cup that the Father had given him. Now what did that cup hold but unimaginable suffering? It was his Father's gift. And Jesus received it and drank it to the dregs. And he's asking you and me, will you love me? Will you trust me? Will you praise me? Isaiah 53 is that magnificent passage describing the terrible sufferings that Christ himself went through. Just let me read you a sampling from that passage. He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And verse 10, to me, is just staggering. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. The will of God crushed the spotless Son of God and caused him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Verse 12. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's you and me. He poured out his life unto death. And he's asking you and me to follow him in that. 
to pour out our lives for the life of the world. That's what it's about. And he's going to make it possible for us to do that as we trust him and look to him. He's asking me, will I accept this gift or will I refuse to be a partaker in the sufferings which he has measured precisely for us? Think of John the Baptist languishing there in prison, beginning to doubt as to whether or not he really had known the Christ. Horrible situation. We can't even imagine what those prisons must have been like. And yet, it was John the Baptist who said, Blessed is he whosoever, is in reference to John the Baptist, that Jesus said, Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And John the Baptist, you know, had his head chopped off because of an evil scheming woman and her silly dancing daughter. John the Baptist faithful forerunner of Christ, faithful servant. Will I accept the gift that God is offering to me now? Will I be a partaker in that divine mystery of suffering? And then the passage in, of Paul's thorn. Paul has been through all kinds of sorrows and tribulations. He catalogs many of his difficulties and shipwrecks and everything else, and let's see, passage in 2 Corinthians, he boasts about his sufferings in chapter 11 in 2 Corinthians. He has been in prison, flogged, received five times the Jews, 40 lashes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. I have been in danger from rivers, danger in bandits, danger from my own countrymen, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger in the sea, and danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? And then I think the most ignominious thing in the whole list is that he was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall. What an ignominious way of departing and slipped through his hands. But then the next chapter is Second Corinthians 12 in which he talks about this strange thing that he was given to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations there was given me a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me a gift from God now was it Satan that gave the gift of the thorn or was it God and the more I've ransacked my brains trying to figure this one out the more clearly it comes to me that it was both God saw to it that Satan gave him a thorn in the flesh because, how do I know this, I didn't make this up out of my head, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now who cares whether Paul, the great apostle Paul, becomes conceited? 
the devil would be tickled to death if Paul was conceited. It is God that keeps him from becoming conceited. There was given a thorn, so the, the thorn was actually given by God, but it was also a messenger of Satan. So we're up against great mysteries here, but I had no doubt that both God and Satan were involved in this great trial that Paul had to submit to. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is all you need. For power comes to its full strength in weakness. That should be a comfort to every one of us. When we feel as if, Lord, this time you've really gone too far, I just don't think I can possibly survive this one. With great compassion and love, he says, my grace is all you need. Power comes to its full strength in weakness. Are we weak? Yes. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, if ever there was a time in my life when I was just utterly helpless and weak, it was when I went to live with the Indians and had killed my husband. I didn't know a word of their language. I didn't know how to live the way they lived. They gave me a house just exactly like theirs. It was six poles with a thatched roof. Um, I had a fire on the floor, as everybody else did. It was a mud floor. I had a bamboo slab for my daughter to sleep on, and I slept in the hammock strung between two of those posts. But the Indians, of course, wondered what in the world I was good for. And I wasn't good for anything at all that they could see. They, the women asked me, do you know how to make clay pots? And I said, no. And so they said, well, we'll show you. And so they got the clay, and they showed me exactly how it was supposed to be done, and they made huge clay pots about like this. And then they insisted that I try it, and of course I made a mess of it. And they just rolled their eyes and threw up their hands, and what kind of a person is this? She doesn't know how to do anything. Um, do you know how to catch fish with your hands? And I said, no. And my daughter, who was three years old, managed to catch fish with her hands within a week. And then they wanted to know if I knew how to plant manioc. No, I didn't know how to plant manioc. That was a staple food, and that was the main thing that we lived on. And so they showed me exactly how to do that, and I, I couldn't do it. No matter what they asked me, I was utterly helpless. And nothing but a nuisance, really. Just a nuisance. And at that time, these... The passages in 2 Corinthians 12 just had such powerful influence in helping me. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, Paul says, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, 
in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. There's a challenge for us, isn't there? That we are to delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships. For when I am, when I am weak, then I am strong. And because Paul had that tiny little thorn after all those huge difficulties, this tiny little thorn, if he had not had that, you and I would never have had this wonderful verse, my grace is all you need, for power comes to its full strength and weakness. So Paul had to go through that for my sake. I have to go through it for somebody else's sake. You have to go through it likewise. And whatever it is that God assigns, you can be absolutely sure that he knows precisely what is good for you. If you feel as though you need another place to live, you're miserable where you are now, it may be that God wants you to stay exactly there because power comes to its full strength and weakness. Uh, One time a woman came up to me, and and we were overseas and this woman had told me that she and her husband had a terribly difficult situation. They were living with all their children in the basement of another missionary's home. And she came to me to say, Elizabeth, would you please pray that God will get us another place to live? And I said, yes, I will be glad to pray that. But I said, you have to realize that today you don't need another place to live. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, This is where you live now, what you just described, yes. And I said, if God wanted you to have another place to live, that's where you would be today. Now, it may be that God is going to give you another place to live, but you don't need it today. If you needed it today, you'd have it today. Because the Bible says, my God shall supply, what, almost all of your need? All you need. And God knew that that was all they needed right then. Well, that woman was just dumbfounded. And she ran to the telephone. She called her husband. She said, honey, we don't need another place to live. And he thought she had lost her mind. Well, then, of course, she explained it to me, to him. And later on, I had a very lovely letter from me, from her telling me that God had indeed provided a place for them to live. But it wasn't on the day when she was asking me to pray that it be right now. So God knows what he's doing, doesn't he? Joy, as Janet Erskine Stewart has said, is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. Joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. Are you willing to embrace the cross, to take up the cross and follow? Another passage which just came alive for me when I was living with the Alka Indians was in 1 Corinthians. To each one, oh wait a minute, I haven't got the right place here yet. I have so many markers that I can't find anything. (laughs) Sorry, Um, 
I'm just going to skip that part now. But in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. I know nothing about what painful trial you may be going through yourself, but I know the one who knows. And I know how many times he has shown himself strong on my behalf when I have felt I can't go on, I can't do anymore, I can't do this anymore. And I'm sure Peter must have been feeling that way. But he was able, through the grace of God, to offer this grace to somebody else. He said, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And now there is an immense mystery, which I want to point out to you, in Colossians 1, verse 24. We are told to, receive, to recognize God in everything. And this is an immense mystery. Colossians 1.24 I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Have you pondered that passage? Here's the Apostle Paul, just a human being, but he says, I fill up in my flesh, and this is the only body which we have, this particular body that God has given us, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. So it looks to me as though there is a quota of suffering which has to be fulfilled one way or another. So when we hear of the earthquakes and the famines and all of these terrible things, we wonder why is this happening, Lord? But there is more than one passage in Scripture which indicates that there is a quota of suffering that simply has to be fulfilled. And in just these last two or three minutes that I have, one of the most wonderful aspects of this question of joy and suffering, the greatest joy, is that whatever suffering God has chosen for you and me, we can find joy in making that an offering. Everything in my life is meant to be an oblation, an offering. All that I am, all that I have, all that I do, all that I suffer, I want to make it an offering to God. He has given it to me. I receive it. Yes, Lord, even if it happens to be a thorn. I receive it, but then I can offer it back to him. And so it is a continual oblation. The receiving of the grace that God has given giving to me and the privilege which he gives to every one of us to offer back to him whatever that thing is that is the hardest thing in your life. You just think there isn't any way that you're going to be able to make it through that. Receive it with both hands. Remember, to him who loved us. 
that is such a marvelous fact of life, which is unchangeable. He loves us with an everlasting love. As I've heard in the, uh, I think it's the War Memorial in Edinburgh, these words, measure thy life by loss and not by gain, not by the wine drunk, but by the wine poured forth. For love's strength standeth in love's sacrifice, and he that suffereth most hath most to give. And when you find that the Lord has given you suffering, it's an opportunity to be joyful. Thank him for it, and then to offer it back to him as a living sacrifice. To him who is strong enough to watch his own son die on the cross. To the world, to the thorns, to all of these things, there's a reason. And I hope that perhaps some glimpses of what those reasons might be have come to you this morning. Suffering is a reality. Joy is also a reality. May God give us both measured exactly to the proportion that he knows we need. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.